0: Acts 22, verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were near Paul, standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? This dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
1: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to stand before you, to stand with your word. Father, I thank you that we just read a story that says that you stood in the prison cell with Paul. I pray that all of us today who are standing in discouragement in despair in desperation would be met by a God who's willing to stand by them Holy Spirit, I pray that you would comfort those who need to be comforted. I pray that you would open our eyes, enlighten the eyes of our heart to see the hope to which we have been called, the glorious inheritance. Father, I pray right now that you would comfort those who are hurting. In the midst of this moment, God, I pray that you would move me out of the way, that your spirit would take the microphone, that you would speak to souls. Only you know how to do that. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. If we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Gage Henry, and I'm the college and community pastor here. And to be honest, today I was praying what I was just praying right there because I need it. And I would love to say that I'm really expectant and excited and really strong before you today. But to be honest, I am in a very uh, desperate spot. In fact, Miles told me I was going to be preaching this Sunday a while ago. And he's given me every single opportunity to release me from this obligation, I would say, in some regard. Um, Because if I can be real with you guys, I, I I need the words that I just read. This past Tuesday, my mom passed away from her four-year fight with terminal cancer. I take courage today from the Spirit of God who is in me and the people of God around me. If you're here today, I don't think it's an accident. I don't wanna be here today, to be honest. But I feel like I'm called by God to preach the passage that we just read about today, and if you looked at that passage, there was one clear message that Jesus had for Paul, and I believe it's the one clear message that Jesus has for us today. God never wastes words, and He never wastes moments, and He says to Paul in a prison cell, "Take courage." If you're here today, you need some courage. Join the club. But the sermon title is going to be called "Take Courage." Take courage. In fact, that I just feel the need. For you to do this with me can you just tell your neighbor take courage take courage I think in a lot of regards courage is one of those things that we think we have to muster up to prove that we have to God I have to prove that I'm courageous but if you notice take courage is a command take it from me every single time in the scriptures you see that phrase sometimes it's translated take heart Every time you see Jesus use that phrase in the scriptures, it's always in a situation where someone is absolutely desperate and has no other option but to receive the gift that God is giving them. So think about the stories that it happens in. It happens to the paralyzed man who can't get up, and he says, take courage. Your sins have been forgiven, and he stands up. Or the bleeding woman with a secret that she finally exposes to everyone, and, she, and, and Jesus says to her, take courage. Your faith has healed you, daughter. Or think about Peter and all the disciples in the middle of a storm, in the middle of this circumstance on the water where the waves are rising and they see a ghost coming at them, but it's Jesus and he says, take courage, it is I. Peter, come on the water with me. And he also says it the night before he goes to the cross when he gathers all of his disciples and he says, in this world you will have trouble. But take courage. I have overcome the world. I believe the message that Paul, we're going to look at in just a moment, he is connecting our hope in this life to the hope for the next life. That our courage in this life, that taking courage from Jesus in this life means that all of your hope is connected to the next life. That in death, we actually find life. In death, we have the opportunity to step into the reason why God created us in the first place, which is his presence and a relationship with him. So we're going to look to the story together. Again, if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to Acts 22. We're going to read this. Again, it says this. This is Paul going before the Sanhedrin in just a moment. It says in verse 30, the commander wanted to find out why, exactly why, Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So the Roman guard's like, why are you trying to kill this man? You're Jewish brethren. Why does it feel like they're trying to kill you? And he's wanting to tell them why. Well, if you go back in the story and you've been with us in Acts, you know that Paul has been on a long journey. I want to take you all the way back. Acts chapter 5 was the Sanhedrin, the first time the disciples were brought in front of the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel, who is this amazing rabbi, has this young guy, Paul, who's under him. And Gamaliel in that moment stands up because all of these disciples they're on trial because they're proclaiming the hope of the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus rose from the dead. And Gamaliel stands up before they're going to beat these people and before they're going to crucify them, and before they're going to kill them. And he stands up and says, what if they're right? If Jesus' movement wasn't real, then the movement will die with them. But if this is real, that means that we will find ourselves fighting God and not man. And they had the disciples beaten and flogged and mocked. And it says that the disciples left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, because they'd been considered worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. They left singing. Fast forward two chapters, and you see the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And before he is stoned, all of the men and women who had grabbed those stones went and laid their coats at a man named Paul, his feet, because he approved of the killing. And it says that Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing there next to the Father. The only moment where we see Jesus standing next to God. And he sees him. And it says that Jesus received his spirit. And the Bible says that he did not fall. It says he didn't die. It says he fell asleep. Because the foundation of the Christian faith is in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. What happens after that? Paul leaves. Paul leaves. Because he's going to go persecute this movement that's happening. And he's on his way to Damascus. And then he's met with the living Christ. And Jesus meets him on the road. And for the next 20 years, he has spent planting churches, spreading the gospel, moving in power. The Spirit is on him. Think about this. The story we just read is 20 years after all of that. 20 years since he stood there and watched those disciples Worship Jesus as they left after a beating an inch from death. 20 years after watching a man breathe his last as he looked into heaven and was received by his Savior. 20 years since he went on this moment meeting Jesus. Think about the sermon that you would preach if you would show back up to the Sanhedrin once again and to be able to proclaim what has happened in your life, to be able to proclaim what Jesus has done on the cross. What sermon would you preach? That's the sermon we're reading. Go to verse one. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. In other words, I'm obedient to God and God alone. Verse 2, At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He got slapped in the face because of his seemingly arrogance. I would call it absolute confidence in God. He gets slapped in the face and he says, you whitewashed wall. The very law that you are judging me by is the one you're so willing to violate because you know that you're not supposed to do that because I'm innocent until proven guilty. But Paul is still showing that he is under the authority of the Word of God because of what he said next. Verse 4 it says, Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now this is so brilliant and it's hard to miss. It's easy to miss, I should say. This is so brilliant by Paul because he's actually insulting the high priest but still being obedient to the, the word of God. Like he's like, I respect the position that you have because the word of God tells me I need to. I just don't respect you. So it's this moment of like looking at the high priest and saying to him, like, I didn't recognize you because you're not acting like a high priest. It's this awesome moment. But then verse six, we're gonna find out the reason why this is happening. Then Paul Knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out and the Sanhedrin. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You know, I think it's easy for us to judge Ananias, but let me just tell you that religion is a very dangerous cover-up for spiritual deadness. It's really easy to want to be perceived as holy, but not actually be holy. It's really easy to project an image that you want people to see you as and manage the external appearance of who you are and not allow the Holy Spirit of God to transform you from within. So before you judge Ananias, I think I see myself a lot in Ananias, but the hope of the resurrection of the dead is the defining doctrine that he will proclaim for the rest of his ministry. And when you look at this story, I believe that what's happening here is so much more than some sort of theological argument or some sort of belief thing. I think that Paul in his right mind is looking at all of them and saying, I have a hope that will never be taken from me and I want to offer it to you. In verse seven, we continue on the story. It says, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. If you wanna know, The whole sermon in like a sentence, like we always do. You can write this down. Taking courage in this life is dependent on your hope in the next life. Taking courage in this life is dependent upon your hope in the next life. See, maybe your courage in this life is so fleeting because your hope is attached to this life. Here's what happens when you attach your hope to this life it means all of a sudden you have your version of good that you're projecting onto God. It means all of a sudden you say to yourself, well, it means that my life plan and everything that I think God should do in my life, it means eventually landing with that spouse. It means having that house. It means moving in, in, in this area. It means having that career, that opportunity without suffering, without trials, without pain, without all of the brokenness of this world. And when you attach your hope to that lie, you miss out on what the Bible really teaches. And the Bible teaches that Paul will never leave prison. Paul won't be delivered from prison. Every disciple will die a horrific death and won't be delivered from that death. Jesus Christ was not delivered from the cross. And yet for some reason in Christianity, we have this tendency to attach the glory of God to the backside of deliverance. And then we miss God in the situation. We believe that God can only receive glory from my life if he actually heals me, if he actually delivers me, if he actually does the thing that I really want him to do or gives me the thing that I really want in this life. But every time I look to Psalm 23, which I don't know if you know that psalm, it's amazing. I love it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I love that verse in verse 3 where he says, he guides you along the right paths for his name's sake. And all of us say, yes, he's taking me on the right path for his name's sake. Then why does verse 4 have to happen? Right after that, next sentence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. God, if you're such a good shepherd, why do we have to go through the valley? Why don't we go around it? Why don't we go somewhere else? If you're such a good shepherd, why am I having to go through the valley? It seems like maybe God's goal for your life is actually discovered in the valley, not after he delivers you from it. Then maybe some of you in this life right now who are going through something, you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. The reason why you're in the middle of that situation is because he's trying to meet you there. He's not trying to deliver you so you don't need him anymore. Maybe the goal of the Christian life is not this deliverance that we all seek. It's delight. Maybe the treasure is him. Maybe the treasure is knowing his voice. Maybe the opportunity that we have today is to take courage from a God who is willing to give it. Because he promises to make all things right. He just doesn't promise that about this life. He promises that about the next life. So when you hear Paul say, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He is attaching his hope, his belief, his faith to a God who is real. So we gotta continue in the story. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Verse eight says, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? So reading this, for me, there are some people that believe that are biblical scholars. um, So I don't want to discount what they're saying, but what they kind of believe is this was like a strategic move by Paul. He said he's going to drop this hope of the resurrection of the dead. It's going to cause this dispute. And this was like a brilliant move by Paul to create a diversion. I honestly disagree with that take. Because I don't believe that Paul was trying to create a diversion. I believe that Paul was trying to deliver a decisive message. He's trying to tell them, I'm on trial for one reason. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. And if you look at what he says, he says, I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. You remember his Pharisaical life? Remember what he did? He was a Pharisee who beat, who mocked, who persecuted, who chased Christians and persecuted Christians. And yet what this text shows us is that while he was doing all of that, he believed that resurrection was possible because the Pharisees believed that resurrection is possible. The difference was on, his ro- on the road to persecute the Christians, resurrection wasn't just possible anymore. Resurrection became a person. He met the resurrection and the life. And now he's proclaiming that resurrection and life to everyone else. He's saying you're invited into it. Verse 10, then the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away. From them by force and bring him into the barracks. The commander was so afraid for his own life because if Paul was killed as a Roman citizen, it would probably be his life too. So, in order to get him out of this situation, he has to take him and put him once again in prison and put him into chains. Now, I feel led to kind of speak to two specific groups in this room as you read this story number one are the Sadducees, and number two are the Pharisees. And so the Sadducees, if you read in this text, what did it say about the Sadducees? It said that the Sadducees believe that there is no resurrection. They believe that there is no angels or demons or, or spirits. There's, there is no spiritual battle going on all around you. Whereas the Pharisees over here believe that resurrection is possible. They believe that there are angels. There are spirits. There is a spiritual war going on for your soul. And where it intersects with us today for many of you in this room right now is that some of you right now, everything that I have been saying, you have thought I am a fool. You don't believe that resurrection is possible. You would actually scoff at the thought that there would be some angels, there would be some demons, that there is a spiritual war going on all around you right now as we speak. In fact, I think right now, deep down somewhere in you, you know that there is a God. And I'm here today to tell you, if that's you, one day you will meet that God. And when you meet that God, There will be no fooling him anymore. There will be no false image you can project to him anymore. There will be no making yourself out to be any better than you really are. And you will stand before a holy God and have to try to save yourself and account for your sin. But the reality is this, for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news, but the gift gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus offered to you. Maybe today if you feel like you're in that Sadducee state, maybe if you feel like everything that I'm saying is foolish and ignorant and stupid, maybe your version of taking courage today would just be letting your fists become unclenched of the pride and the anger and the frustration and the, the pain of your past open long enough to receive the free gift that Jesus is offering you. We call it repentance. I've sinned. I need someone in my place when I stand before a holy God. And many of you in this room, I think, are more in the camp of the Pharisees, whether you realize it or not. You would say that resurrection is possible. In fact, many of you probably say, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, I prayed the prayer. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm going to heaven one day. Yeah, I believe all these things are true. And yet, for some reason, when reading this story, I just felt led to ask some of you guys, do you functionally act as if it's true, though? Because theoretically, I could believe that resurrection is possible, but functionally, all of my beliefs are tested in the practical fires of living. Everything about my life is going to be really tested about what I believe by how I actually live and how I actually act. So the hope of the resurrection of the dead, if you really believe that, then why are you living for this world? Why is it so hard to release some of the things you're holding on to It's like you don't really want to actually trust God because you don't want to really have to depend on him, yet you say you do. So let me ask you this question. Are you orchestrating your life in such a way as to admit the truth of Christianity without having to be embarrassed by its implications? It's a quote that spoke to me from Tozer. Are you arranging your life in such a way are you orchestrating everything about your life in such a way as to yes admit the truth of Christianity about the resurrection, yet not have to be embarrassed by its implications for your life and what that means for your finances and what that means for your family and what that means for what you do in this life? Are you? Are you embarrassed by it? Tozer calls that pseudo faith. By the way, I think there's a sinful tendency in all of us to create backup plans in case God fails us. We create escape routes. In case we feel forsaken. But it's either God. Or total collapse. I want to read this quote. I think it will make this make sense. If you can just hear these words. What we need these days. Is a company of Christians. Who are prepared to trust God. As completely now. As they know they must at the last day. For each of us. The time is surely coming when we shall have nothing but God. Health and wealth and friends and hiding places will all be swept away and we shall have only God. To those of pseudo-faith, that is a terrifying thought. But to real faith, it is one of the most comforting thoughts the heart can entertain it would be a tragedy indeed to come to the place where we have nothing but God and find that we had not been trusting God at all. Are you arranging a way out in case God fails you? The story we just read, it seems like Paul had failed. He's in a prison cell. Think back to to Paul, 20 years of daydreaming about the moment he would stand before the Sanhedrin and he would deliver this unbelievable message and people would come to know Jesus and the saving faith that he has. And yet when he showed up to Jerusalem, you know what he was met with? He was met with a compromised church with legalistic believers who thought he was skeptical because of his love. They were skeptical of him because of his love for the Gentiles. And here he delivers one sentence, gets slapped upside the head. Delivers one message about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And now he's stuck in prison chains once again. Down. Discouraged. Broken. Hurting. And Jesus says this, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Some of you need to underline that. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Some of you have been through things. The following night, the Lord stood near you. Some of you are going through something right now. The following night, God is going to stand near you. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome see, he was all alone, but he was not alone. And I don't know about you, but I would rather be in the prison with Jesus than paradise without him. I'd rather be there with him in the middle of it, in the jail cell, tied to the chains, if he's there with me. And you know what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't tell him what's really about to happen, he says, take courage, I'm sending you to Rome. What he doesn't tell him is there's like 40 or 50 assassins waiting outside to kill him. He doesn't tell him that the next two years are actually gonna be in custody in Caesarea. He doesn't tell him he's gonna be shipwrecked in the Mediterranean Sea. He doesn't tell him that everybody's going to try to kill him. And by the way, you're never not gonna be a prisoner again. You're gonna end up in Rome as a prisoner. Take courage, Paul. You're actually doing way better than you think. Not. It's like, what? Are you serious? He doesn't tell him that. Why? Why? Because Jesus Tells us what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, to keep going. He tells us what we need to hear, when we need to hear it, to keep going. You know what Paul thinks? I'm going to Rome. As I've testified here, God's not through with me. God's not done with me. I'm still in the fight. I still have breath in my lungs. I still have a message to share. God's not through with me. Take courage. So I want to address the elephant in the room in a moment. The elephant in the room is this, is that people like me get up here and they talk about suffering and they say, you can keep fighting through it. Yes, take courage, it's gonna be okay. What about if it's not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the final enemy. What happens if the temptations and the trials and the things that you're going through in this life right now, the only end date to them is death? I'm talking about some illnesses that you have. I'm talking about the addiction you're going to fight the rest of your life. I'm talking about the sin within you. You know, the Bible says you can't act upon. I'm talking about the thing in you that you know its end date is only death. See, I, I had an accident a while back and every single day after the surgery of this accident, it was like I knew each day I'm getting better, Right? Every day I was like, hey, I'm going to fight through today because tomorrow I'm one step to being healed. Tomorrow I'm one step to being healed. But I saw the opposite happen with my mom. Every day with terminal cancer is one day closer to your death. There is no end date. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is only death in a slow decline as you make it. So with the time that I have left in the next few minutes, I just want to share with you a few illustrations and a few analogies about what watching my mom die has caused me to believe about the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Because you don't get this opportunity many times to say goodbye to your mom. You get maybe one chance, and I got it this week. And I don't want this to be about that. I believe God is calling some of you out of the prison cells that you are in, because through death is where we find life. And so as I was saying goodbye to her, and as we're kind of experiencing this final moment, I I just began to say so many words, and I saw in her face the excitement to meet Jesus. I saw the the glory that she was about to experience just radiating from her face, even if she could just get a few words out. And the maiden picture that I saw about who Jesus was was actually from my dad. See, I got to watch my dad over and over and over again. I don't know if you know this about cancer, but what happens to your body is horrific. She had nothing but skin and bones on her body anymore. It was just skin hanging from her bones, I mean. There was splotches all over her. She had no hair left. Because of the swelling and the fluid in her belly, it had swelled to the point where she looked nine months pregnant. And I watched every single day that I was there, I would watch my dad lean down in to the bed and scoop her up into his arms, And he would lift her up and it was hard on her body and he would place her in a chair in the middle of the living room just to relieve herself. And then he would take her back and he would clean her up and he would wash her and he would lean back over that bed and as he would lay her down in the bed, he would be whispering to her, I love you. I'm with you. You're so strong. Keep fighting. I love you. And he would lay her down and every single time he would do it, all I could think about was this. Jesus looks at us that way. He looks down at us in our brokenness, in our disease. And he lifts us up and he cleanses us and washes us and he places us back in his arms. And so my dad and I, we go out in the driveway and we're having this moment. We're like hugging it out, just weeping about what we're experiencing. And I remember um, looking at him and saying, exactly what I just said to you. It's like, dad, thank you so much for showing me what Jesus really looks like. This is what Jesus really looks like. By the way, if you're a caretaker of somebody, you are showing them what Jesus really looks like. And he's showing me what Jesus really looks like. And I'm telling him this, and he's like laughing at me. He's like, intimacy has only grown over the years. He's like, don't you officiate weddings? Don't you say that quote where marriage sustains the love? It's not love that sustains the marriage. He's like, I want you to know that every single time I look at your mom, I don't see this diseased, cancer-ridden body. It's that every time I look down at her, I see that 30-year-old that I married. I see that beautiful bride. And I have a picture of it. He said, Every time I see your mom, I see her in all her beauty and all her radiance and all her glory. And I think back to who she really was and what she really looks like. She doesn't look like cancer. She looks like that. And so I walk back into the room and my mom's there, and I'm just filled, just this joy I can't explain. And I'm walking back into the room and, and I'm sitting down and I'm just looking at my mom who's laying there in the bed and it hits me and I almost could not believe it. But only God would do it this way. Where where the hospital bed is laying in our living room, right behind the bed is actually that picture. So right behind, where she is lying in her deathbed, behind her is the picture of her on her wedding day. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe I have the analogy all wrong. See, because when I started thinking about it, I was like, wow, if I'm thinking about Jesus and my dad, yes, my dad is revealing the love of Christ every single time he cares for her and every single time he picks her up. But the difference between my dad and Jesus is my dad chose my mom at her most beautiful state when she was radiant, when she was pure, when she was holy. The difference is Jesus chose us when we were in our deathbed state. While we were still sinners, Christ says, he died for us. Which means for all of us in this room and everybody watching and listening, that means that when God chose you, you were an inch from death. You were dirty. You were discarded. You were used. You were filthy. You were stained. You were unclean. You were deserving of death. God looked down on you in that state and said, I'm sitting, my son. The son of God came down from heaven to become the sacrifice. It says that he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. See, only Jesus could do that. See, only Jesus could take what death meant for us and turn it into resurrection power. Only Jesus could take death and turn it into the doorway to eternal life. Only Jesus could take a crucifixion and turn it into a resurrection. Only Jesus could do this. And only Jesus, when I think about him, the last blow of the enemy over you and over me is death. But because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, even death can be a gift. Even death can be a gift. Here's what I mean by that. As I got to pray over my mom and as I was looking at her, I remember saying to her, It's okay. Go be with Jesus. Go see your dad who you miss. Go see your sister who's already there. Go meet your two daughters that you lost and miscarriage before me. Go see our friends, our family. Better than that, go see Jesus. Go fall at his feet. Go join him with the song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy. It's okay. Death is a gift. It's okay. It's time to go. See, my mom did not die a good person. My mom was a dead person that Christ made alive. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And you know what's funny to me? Is that at that moment as I was praying over her and and towards the end when she finally breathed her last and she was laying there, I saw the bride picture behind her. And it was like God told me. She's no longer in the hospital gown. She's back in her dress. Jesus picks us in our most sinful state and purifies us as his beautiful bride. And all week people have been encouraging me in so many different ways. And I wanna use this moment in a way that I believe God is speaking to some of you. Again, I don't believe it's an accident you're here. In fact, I really believe that some of you have never put your faith in Jesus an actual trust in Jesus and you are supposed to receive the free gift of God offered in Christ Jesus to you that he has purchased on your behalf. In fact, my mom's name is Renee. My mom's name means born again. John 3, 3 says the none may enter the kingdom of God, unless they are born again, which means the Holy Spirit of God intersects your life and you give your life to Jesus. So there's a Psalm that people kept saying over me, and I just wanna close with it. I wanna put it on the screen, it's Psalm 116. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly I am your servant, Lord, I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. And this is where Paul connects to us. I believe that my mom's death is supposed to give you life but I also believe that for some reason some of you are stuck in a prison cell of doubt. Some of you are stuck in a prison cell of discouragement and you feel like God is so far from you and you feel like there's no power left in your life and you feel like he has left you or he has forsaken you and I'm here today to tell you that I believe that you have the invitation from Jesus to be freed of those chains. You can be free but you have to take courage. You have to receive what God is offering you. You can't have your fist clenched any longer. So here's what I wanna do. We're not gonna take communion in this moment like we normally would. I believe that the spirit of God is supposed to encourage some people here this morning. I believe that God has a very intentional plan to to encourage some of you who have been in discouragement And so in just a moment, I'm actually going to ask if you are in this room right now and you feel like you are lost, you feel like you're broken, you feel like you're in that state, like just like me, where you're desperate for somebody to show up and you know that the spirit of God is talking to you in such a way at all of our locations in just a moment, I'm gonna invite anybody who wants courage from this body of Christ to stand and we're just gonna pray over you. But I asked our prayer team just for a few specific situations to speak into. And our prayer team came back to me right before I came on stage. And they told me that there's some of you in this room right now, there's at least one person in this room, I believe, who's had trouble breathing because of their anxiety recently. Take courage. Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, I'm sending you to Rome. Take courage, Sarah. Take courage, John. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so I am sending you to Rome. I also believe there's some people in this room who you just lost a loved one, you just lost somebody and you just need a space to be able to grieve with the body of Christ. You've been holding on for too long by yourself. So I wanna give you the opportunity to stand and us to be able to pray over you. Maybe this is a moment again, you wanna receive Christ as well, but if you're in this room, you know that's me in the prison cell. I need some encouragement from somebody. I need somebody. I need Jesus to show up. If that's you, if you would, just stand in this room right now. to pray in a moment? If while I'm praying, you feel like you need to stand as well, because you need Jesus to stand with you, feel free to do that. But if you're standing near somebody who needs some encouragement today, who needs the prayers of God's people, would you just put a hand on them? And if it's someone you love, I would say stand with them and Give him a hug. Heavenly Father, God, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of it all. God, thank you for saving us In fact, if you're standing right now and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I just want you to say a simple prayer. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. I'll never be the same. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would comfort those who just stood Holy Spirit, I can't even see what's going on in their different situations, but God, I know that you are a God who cares. You're a God who walks in the middle of the valley. God, you're someone who cares about us in the details of our lives in such a way that dumbfound us. So Father, I pray an extra level of courage that whatever the people are walking through who are standing right now would know that the way they have testified about you here will be how you, that you will use them in the future that their wounding could truly become your witness. So Father, I pray right now that we would look to your cross and know you have paid for it all. That all of our sin doesn't have to belong on our conscience anymore. It can belong on the cross. So comfort those who need to be comforted. Shepherd those who need to be shepherded. We ask for your spirit to speak to the depths of our soul. We wanna hear from you. So, Father, I pray a blessing over the boldness, the true courage of being willing to stand and say, I'm desperate and I have no courage. Father, you are a good God that we trust, even in the hardships that we face. Our hope is attached to the next life, not this one. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.